James chapter 3. One of the most interesting things, I guess, about being a human being is that all of us have inside us a sense of how things ought to be. And we care about it quite a bit. We argue over it. Sometimes over things that are seemingly pretty important to us. Sometimes it's pretty inconsequential things. But we have this thing that tells there's a right and there's a wrong. Uh, and even those of us who may kind of shrink back from that a little bit, like, I don't know if I want to say that. I don't know if it's right or wrong. Uh, those of us who may not be as comfortable with statements of absolutism, even that is coming from a place of how things ought to be. In other words, say, well, I don't think you ought to say that something is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. You get what I'm saying? There's still that thing inside of us, that there's a right way and a wrong way to live and to be and to think. And it permeates every aspect of our lives. It certainly permeates religion and religious expression. It, uh, it gets involved in how society ought to be ordered. It gets into relationships. They shouldn't have done whatever they did. Or maybe, when we're more humble, I shouldn't have done whatever I did that messed up this relationship. Uh, we get into it whenever we talk about uh, whether it's LeBron or MJ. We get into it whether it's Tupac or Biggie or Brooklyn or Bronx or whatever the thing may be. However consequential or inconsequential, there's this thing inside of us that says there's, two, there's a way you ought to be and a way you ought not to be. A choice you ought to make and a choice you ought not to make. James helps us understand that there's actually uh, some guiding light for that choice. Like we all have that sense, although we all, dis oh, not we all, hopefully not all, but we all have, tend to have disagreements over different things about what the right answer is to what ought to be and what ought not to be. And James says the reason for that in this text in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 is by the path that you're on. What's the thing underneath you that's guiding that moral compass you have inside that says, here's how things ought to be. Here's the direction we ought to go. And James says everybody has two choices on that. One is you can have your moral compass guided by the gravitational pull of what's from above or that compass inside you can be guided by the gravitational pull of what's below. And it has big consequences, how you decide what ought to be and what ought not to be. Um, if you decide to do it God's way, from above, if that's your gravitational pull, then there's, the, I love that line in verse 18, it's just a great, great thing to aspire to. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't that great? Peaceful fruit of righteousness. A sense of wholeness that's produced by living in the way you ought to live. That's what righteousness really is, the way things ought to be. That's, one, that's where one path leads. But the other path, he says, is just, it's all the worst and the darkest kinds of paths. Look at the language he uses. He says in verse 15, he says that it's earthly, natural. I'm going to say, that doesn't sound too bad. Demonic. This is the bad stuff. This is... The dark path. This is not where you want to be. And of course, he, he describes it as those who follow this path, who uh, have their sense of ought ruled by the demons, ruled by what's natural, ruled by the earthly. If that's your sense of how you ought to live or what you ought to do, you're going to be filled with arrogance and you're going to be guided by and you're going to produce lies and you're going to have jealousy and all sorts of bad stuff's going to go on in your relationships and inside you in every sort of way. Of course, the way that James describes these two paths that we can set ourselves on with this sense of ought that God's given all of us, he describes the one path, the peaceful fruit of righteousness path, 
as wisdom from above. And what's funny to me is he doesn't call the other path foolishness from below. Because that's what I would think. Wisdom from above and foolishness from below. But he says, no, no, it actually is a wisdom. Now, it's not a good kind of wisdom. It's not something that's going to help you. But James is presenting to us that everybody has their, their ought, that sense of there's right and there's wrong, guided by some sort of wisdom, some sort of framework or worldview or ideology or philosophy, whatever word you want to use it, James used the word wisdom. This is the thing that's going to guide all those little decisions, all your little sensibilities, all your relationships are going to be guided by what wisdom you follow after. There's one book of the Bible that talks a tremendous amount about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world, and that's the book of Proverbs. Go to Proverbs chapter 4, and I'd like you to note how James, in what he writes here, is really keying off of what the proverb writer says in Proverbs 4. Proverbs is a book that's written by a father to his kids. At least that's the way he presents it. Now, really, it's for everybody to listen to the wise king Solomon and some other people who contributed to this work. It's primarily Solomon, but others contributed as well. But many times Solomon, when he's speaking, uh, he addresses it to children. And maybe the point is, anybody who's listening should think of themselves as a child. After all, that's what Jesus said. If you want to inherit the kingdom, if you want to come to the true Solomon and inherit the real wisdom from above, you've got to come like a child. And here's what Solomon says to his children. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10. It says, hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. There will be a peaceful fruit of righteousness, we might say. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. And when you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. That sounds pretty good. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her. That is, guard instruction. Guard wisdom. For she is your life. Which makes sense. Remember what James said. The demons, they're not living. Not really. I mean, they're alive, but they ain't living. You know, The things that are earthly and natural, they go away. Solomon says, if you follow this wisdom that I'm giving you, though, you'll hold on to life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Don't get into the lies, the arrogance, the selfishness, the bitter jealousy and ambition, all that kind of uh -uh, Don't get in that. Verse 16, for they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat or they feed on the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. That's what this wisdom from below, the wisdom of demons, that's what it is. Verse 18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. We should just take this for granted because it's from the mouth of God by his servant Solomon. But the truth is, we don't even need the Bible to tell this for us. It's funny, whenever, um, when I first started preaching, there was a young guy, at least you know, all the time, there was, there was a young guy that I was talking to who had been in and out of jail a lot, and he was just mixed up in a lot of bad stuff. Anyway, we'd get together every few, you know, you tried every week. Sometimes the show up, he wouldn't be there, whatever. But anyway, we tried to talk about God, talk about Bible, talk about living in the way of righteousness. And one time I asked him, I said, hey, do, do you, we always talk like you just believe in God, you believe in the Bible. Do you? Do you believe in the Bible? And I mean, I'm not, no shots. I'm not trying to insult you with this question. I just want to know because I'm coming from this position of God and righteousness and all this kind of stuff. 
So what do you think about that? He said, oh, yeah, I definitely believe in the Bible. I was like, really? I was like, okay, so you believe it came from God? I'm like, God, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I was like, why? He said, the book of Proverbs, man. I was like, what are you talking about? Of all things, not the resurrection, not the order of the cosmos that proves that there's a designer behind all things, not some sort of deep dive study on fulfilled prophecies, none of that stuff that we would usually think of as proof of the existence of God and proof that this book is from God. No, Proverbs, that's the thing that got him. And so I was like, well, why? He's like, man, Proverbs has been the playbook of my life, start to finish. He had walked the path of the wicked. He had lived like this. And he had seen that it just got darker and darker. And he was stumbling, and he didn't know why. He did know this, but he didn't know why he was stumbling. And he could watch people who were living righteously, and their life was getting brighter and brighter, just like the noonday sun. We've got to choose to live by the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God. That's got to be the path that we set ourselves on. That's got to be the gravitational pull for that moral compass that God's given us. We've got to orient it toward what God's wisdom is, not the wisdom of this world. So where does that start? Go back to the first paragraph of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Where does wisdom begin? If we want to have peaceful fruit of righteousness... If we want to enjoy all the good things that God has in store for us, if we want to live a life that's free from darkness and destruction and pain and all the bad stuff of the wisdom of this world, where does wisdom start? Where does the wisdom from above begin? Proverbs 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. These first few verses, he really lays it out. I want to make you smarter. That's what he's saying. I want to make you smarter. And not just smarter in some sort of abstract way. I'm going to give you smarts about how to actually live, how to relate to people around you, how to relate to God. I want you to be able to perceive things better and just have a better processing center in your mind to be able to move with God in the way that he's trying to move you in his way. That's what it's all about. And here in verse 7, he gives us a summation of where this all starts. In other words, if you want to go on this path, if you want to go on this journey, if you want to follow the way of wisdom, of God's wisdom from above, here's where it begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Actually, flip over, just so you know, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, flip over to chapter nine of Proverbs, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are a bunch of different dialogues, and they cover really broad, sweeping things. They'll zoom into really specific applications. But it's like this dad talking to his kids about how to live their life. It's almost like he's, you know, it's like the kid's about to go to college or about to move out of the house or whatever it is, and the dad's saying, here's how you need to live. Here's what you need to watch out for and all this kind of stuff. The rest of the book is just a lot of, you guys maybe have read it before a good bit, where most of the book of Proverbs is these quick-hitting single statements. Do this, don't do that, watch out for this, think about this, whatever. But the first nine chapters are these dialogues and discourses but at the beginning and the end of this dialogue about wisdom, we have this phrase, the fear of the Lord, the mantra for the wise, the starting point for wisdom. Chapter 9 and verse 10, we see it repeated. Chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One 
is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we really want to be people who live by the wisdom from above, we've got to learn to fear the one who is above. In just a second, I want to show you, there's actually three places uh, throughout the wisdom literature. One in the book of Job that we read earlier, one in the book of Psalms, and one in the book of Ecclesiastes that help us unpack a little bit about what it means to have this starting point of the fear of the Lord in order to walk in the way of wisdom. But I do want to just pause real quick and clarify um, as much as my pea-sized brain can do as far as how to think about this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Sometimes when I read this, and sometimes in the Bible it means this, fear the Lord, I think, be scared of God because he could mess you up. Well, that's true. And actually there are times in Scripture where that's kind of the idea. You need to fear God because he could mess you up. He's the God who created all things, and if you think he can't blow you off the face of the earth with not even a second thought, he could. You need to be in fear of that. And you need to be in fear of standing before God with your sins still on your record. You need to be in fear of God of going before him on judgment day and not being cleaned up by the blood of Jesus. You need to be afraid of God in that way because he's a God who hates sin and he's all-powerful and all-knowing. So yeah, sometimes the fear of the Lord means that. But I'll say this, if you're a godly person, if you're in Jesus Christ, you should not have that kind of fear. You shouldn't be terrified of God. You should actually have great confidence on the day of judgment. That's what John says. Whenever you really love God like he loves you, you shouldn't be scared of getting blown off the face of the planet. You shouldn't be walking around always like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so bad. No, that's not, that's not what the fear of the Lord means. Now, some would say, okay, it means don't fear the Lord then. No, actually, he's talking here, and he's assuming people who are going to live righteously. And he says, you should keep on fearing God. So what does it mean? If the fear of the Lord doesn't mean being terrified of God or scared of him all the time, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Let me use a synonym that the scriptures use sometimes uh, that, that may help us a little bit with fearing something. Have you ever been in awe of something? In awe of something. Because it was a really, truly awesome thing. Or actually, if you read really old books or really old poetry, they'll talk about an awful thing. I know there's a very, very old hymn. Here's the title of it. Before Jehovah's Awful Throne. What do you think about that song? What are we saying then? Now, actually, the whole, now, we, we hear the word awful and we're like, oh, I thought God was good. Why are we saying his throne is bad? Because we use the word awful, meaning it's really bad, but not back in the old days. Back in the old days, awful just meant it was full of awe. In other words, you come before God and you're just mesmerized, entranced, captivated by the awe-inspiring experience that you're having right there. You ever had that sort of thing? And I don't mean on that sort of level like we would have whenever we actually see him as he is. But I mean, you go see some natural wonder, a mountain, a waterfall. You fall in love with somebody. You have some sort of, uh, I don't know, great other kind of experience that you're just filled with this thing that it's like you can't break away and you're kind of sort of paralyzed, but you don't want to leave, but you're not sure if you belong there. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those are little whispers of what it means to be in the fear of the Lord. As a matter of fact, some of you know exactly what that's like because you've had experiences where I'm too scared. I can't do this. It's such an incredible thing. I'm, I, all right, here's what it means. Whenever we're afraid of something like that, whenever we're in awe of something like that, we relate ourselves to it in a proper way. There are animals that I'm in awe of. You guys ever experienced that? You're at a zoo or you're in some sort of outdoor kind of zoo type setting. You're just amazed at this thing. Part of the awe is you understand like, oh, that thing could eat my face off, so I'm going to back it up and give it a little space because I'm in awe of that thing, right? 
But then in other terms, think about someone who you're attracted to and you think is just the most beautiful, wonderful, intelligent kind of person that you've ever met. The awe that's inspired in you by that person isn't going to push you away, actually, but if it's someone who you believe to be gracious and all these things, it'll actually draw you closer to them. That fear of their greatness, that awe of them, causes you to relate to them properly. Do you get what I'm saying? I think that's what, whenever we read the scripture about the fear of the Lord, the idea is you need to orient yourself, relate yourself in a proper way to God. So you know what? If you're in sin, the fear of the Lord should make you be scared. But if you're in Christ, if you're living a righteous life, the fear of the Lord draws you even closer to God, to his throne of grace. The fear of the Lord makes us orient ourselves properly in relation to him. All right. What does that actually mean in terms of the way of our lives, the wisdom which we follow? Go to Job chapter 28. Mark already read this, so I'm not going to read the whole text, but I want to highlight a couple things. As we unpack a little more of what the fear of the Lord is going to look like in our actual lives. Job chapter 28. The book of Job is fascinating because a bunch of friends arguing about how God works in the world. And right in the middle of this book is this chapter that describes real wisdom. It was a bunch of guys who were not very wise, by the way. That's actually the big part of the point of the book of Job, is human beings apart from God are not very wise. The first 11 verses describe uh, how, how people search for precious stones and gems, how people dig deep into the earth and they hang lamps that swing in these caves that are like huge, not even just huge rooms. They're, they're a whole other world that they're down in. And people find dust that's like gold and they dig down and they find these precious stones but then the question gets posed in verse 12 after talking about all the precious things that people find in the earth and under the earth. Verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? I mean, no person really gets the value of wisdom. And you look around in the world, the, he personifies the ocean as saying, it's not over here. And the depths of the earth to say, nope, not here either. And you look everywhere and you're not going to find it. And so verse 20. We come back to the question, where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? If it's not from down here, if it's not from around us, it's hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from even the birds of the sky, the eagles and the falcons, the ones who look down, they can see everything. They can't even see wisdom. They can't find it anywhere here on earth. But verse 23, there's reassurance to us. God understands the way and he knows its place. After all, he's the one that made the earth and he sees everything in it. He imparted weight to the wind, verse 25. He set limits to the rain, verse 26. Verse 27, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, behold, look, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So here's the first lesson about what it means to fear the Lord in a way that will guide us toward wisdom. To fear the Lord starting out toward the path of, of the wisdom from above means you stop looking for wisdom on earth. Stop looking for wisdom on earth. It's so easy for us to want wisdom on earth and to look for it or to think we've found it. There's so many articles you can read, so many books we can find, so many friends who've had so many interesting experiences. And I just want to say this, they have wisdom. They do. They have wisdom. But unless it's coming from God, or it's something they've stumbled upon that God's just graciously given them, it's wisdom from below. 
It's not wisdom from above. If it doesn't accord with God himself, then it's wisdom from below. And so whatever friends may tell me, whatever book I read or whatever experience I've had or whatever wisdom I've derived myself even, I need to stop thinking that's the source of wisdom. Stop searching for wisdom down here. Fear the Lord and search for his wisdom, the wisdom from above. That's what it means to walk in the way of wisdom. That's what it means to fear the Lord and in that way to start on the path. But now what gives God the right to say that he's the only one who has wisdom? I know that's a really foolish, terrible question and pretty arrogant, honestly. But let's go ahead and ask it because we ask that. Whether we ask it out loud, we ask it in here sometimes. God, what gives you the, like, are you really wise? Because, like, you haven't been in my marriage, you know? Or God, are you really wise? Because you've never dealt with my friends or my roommates. God, are you really wise? Because my boss, I don't know if you've seen one quite like him, you know? You've never had a boss, God. You are the boss. So you don't know what it's like dealing with a boss, you know? Go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111 is the second scripture that we're looking at that contains this, the mantra of the wise, that we are people who believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The reason why we don't look to the earth, we don't look to people of the world, we don't look to things down here for wisdom, is because God has proven himself as the only trustworthy source of wisdom. The phrase is at the very end of this psalm, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Okay, so here we go with this assertion. If you want to have real wisdom, if you want to have wisdom that will result in something good, that will bring light and fruit and good stuff into your life and not destruction and darkness and pain, you need to fear the Lord and look to his wisdom, not to the wisdom of the earth. Why? Why do I look to that which is from above? Why do I look to God? instead of finding wisdom within or around me. Well, listen to how God's proven himself worthy of our trust. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's given food to those who fear him. and He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. All right, so before coming to the punchline, hey, if you want to be wise in the world, you need to fear the Lord. The psalmist tells us why. And the reason is, he's earned it, baby. Like, look at all that he's done. What more could he do to prove it to you that you need to just sit down at his feet and listen? Don't look inside. Don't go searching for it around. Don't, don't go dig down in the earth to try to find the wisdom. That stuff that's from below, that's natural, that's earthly. It's not going to get you where you want to go. You need to seek God, a wisdom from God alone. Fear the Lord and seek wisdom from Him alone. Notice the things that make, should make us trust God and His wisdom. Verse 3, splendid and majestic 
is his work. I love this it's broad thing. There's a similar statement, verse 4, he has made his wonders to be remembered. Well, I'll tell you one place we can start with, with the work of God and the wonders of God, one place that the Psalms in particular highlight, and really all the scriptures, but especially some of the Psalms, go out in creation. Look around. Look around at how this whole planet works. Look around at how all the planets work and how the sun works and how if everything was off just a tiny, tiny smidgen of a bit, we'd be done. We'd be cooked or we'd be frozen either way. Look at how all the stars are ordered and how they, they, don't, they don't float around. You know every night when you go out, there's, well, I mean, you can't see stars here, but in the places where you can see the stars, you know exactly where they're going to be. And you could chart everything. You can guide your life by this order that's been set up. Who would be smart enough to put that together? By the way, the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified as this woman who was God's uh, co-worker in founding the earth and building everything. You want to trust God? Go look at what he made. His works testify to the fact that he is wise. So don't look down here at the creation for the answers. Look to the creator for the answers. How about this? It's not just that God is smart and he puts stuff together because, you know, there's some smart people. Y'all probably know some smart people or you work with some smart people. Or maybe you are one of these smart people who isn't very wise. You know what I mean? Know a lot of facts. They can even put a lot of stuff together, but they don't know how to live. They don't know what to do. And you're not even sure if you'd want to live the way they think you should live. Look at what else it says about God. It's not just that he's smart, that he built the world. It says in verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. Well, what does it mean that he's righteous? Verse 4 continues in the second half. It says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's given food to those who fear him. Uh, God is good. And I know that's just a thing we say a lot, but do we really appreciate exactly what it means? I love that the psalmist talk, and he's about to talk about the covenant. We'll get into that in just a second. But, 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 but talking about the big stuff that God makes, like creation or like his covenant or like whatever it may be. He's so big, but you know what? The reason why you have food in your belly is because God is good and he's looking out for you. He feeds us. He provides for us. He puts clothes on your back, either directly by his power, through his people, or whatever it may be. God does good stuff. And you know what? A lot of people, they don't even know how to do good stuff or how to provide for the needs of other people. But God does. God's wise. And his wisdom is not going to hurt you because he's not a hurting kind of God. That's why you should trust him. Sometimes we come across stuff that God has said and we say, that sounds pretty painful. I don't know if that's very nice. I don't really like that very much. God is the God who feeds you. So don't trust the wisdom of the world. Trust the wisdom of God. It may seem a little bit painful, and it'll be some discipline. The proverb writer will speak about that. That God's discipline is painful, but it's because he loves you. It's the God who feeds you, and his wisdom is just another kind of food to guide your life. But he goes on and he says he will remember his covenant forever. The idea of covenant is so important and fascinating. For one, it's about formulating a relationship, a committed relationship. But a covenantal relationship requires some foresight, some self-understanding, some understanding of the other person, some ability to formulate terms for that relationship, and then the strength and the, the integrity to hold to that relationship. God has done that. He did that with all of humanity, back with Adam and then with Noah. He did that with Abraham and then with the nation of Israel. He's done that with us in Jesus Christ. God's covenants that he has kept throughout history with his people as he's drawing people back is proof of his wisdom. Who else would come up with all the ideas that God has had to put us back together? We've done a lot to break us apart. You guys know relationships are one of the hardest things to fix and one of the hardest things to be wise about. 
All of us make big, big mistakes in our relationships. So much so that we have to get people to intervene in our relationships at times. Or we have to go ask, well, what should I do about this? Or we go to a counselor to tell us how we should, because we don't have a lot of wisdom. God does. God's had the wisdom to put this, the most devastating cleavage of any relationship, any kind of break that could ever happen, God has put this back together and he's made us one through the covenant that he's made and that he's kept. And along the way, God's given lots of rules for how human beings should live, but look at how the psalmist talks about that. The works of his hands are truth and justice. Think about how many times God would either give a rule for how to execute truth and justice, or he himself would intervene to do truth and to do justice. Of course, ultimately, he did that in Jesus Christ. You guys get it, right? The point is God has proven himself that he is worthy of our trust, that his wisdom is superior, exclusively superior, to any other wisdom that we could ever find. Job 28, the fear of the Lord means that we don't trust in any wisdom of the world. We only seek wisdom from God. Psalm 111 teaches us the reason why we should seek wisdom from God alone is he's proven it, that he's the only trustworthy source and that he is indeed trustworthy. But notice in Psalm 111, the last verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he gives this parallel statement. All those who do his commandments have good understanding. All right, so wisdom and understanding, those are parallel statements, right? So the pair for wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but the pair of good understanding is doing his commandments. What's that all about? I wouldn't necessarily think fearing the Lord equals doing his commandments. Except that's exactly what the fear of the Lord manifests as. Or maybe we'll say it this way. That's where wisdom really begins if you want to really live a wise life. Look at our third text, Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is not a dad talking to his kids. It's a preacher who's telling anybody who will listen about his life and about what God had taught him along the way. Seems like it's almost certainly Solomon, though that's not explicitly said, which is kind of interesting. But all through, he's given a lot of wise perspective about what the world isn't, what God is, and how you should deal with all that. And at the end of it, uh, the, the narrator of the preacher's words comes in, in verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 9. It says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught people knowledge. You can almost see the little video montage at the end of the movie. You know, he's sitting there, people are coming, he's informing people and explaining stuff to people. And he pondered. He's sitting there in his office, sipping tea, thinking. And he searched out and arranged many Proverbs. See, the book of Proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, the words of wise men are like goads. A goad is what you would use to poke an animal to get it going in the right direction. They're like goads. They, kinda, they don't really feel very good, but they get you going in the right direction. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails where you can really hang your life on. But they're given not by people of the earth. They're given by one shepherd, God, the Lord, just like Job 28 said. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. In other words, if you just keep on always chasing after wisdom, especially wisdom in this world, you're going to wear yourself out. Okay, but I want to be wise. 
I don't want to run around here like a fool. I definitely don't want to get on that bad path of the wisdom from below and mess my whole life up. I don't want to be in that deep darkness and be stumbling around and not know why. So what is, how, where am I going with this wisdom that I can unpack and find and that's accessible? And where does it start? Verse 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. That's our mantra. That's where we start. Meaning what? And keep his commandments. Because this is the whole duty of man, or this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. All right, so Job 28, fearing the Lord means I seek wisdom from God alone, not from sources of wisdom on the earth, including me, my friends, whatever. Psalm 111, I seek wisdom from God alone because he's the only one who's proven himself worthy of my trust to gain wisdom. And what that's going to mean in my life, fearing the Lord, it's going to mean that I assume a posture of submissive obedience all the time. Now, I don't know all the stuff that I'm supposed to do because if I'm really wise, I'm going to be learning all the time. I'm going to be growing in that wisdom. But what I can have every moment of every day is the attitude of obedience. Or going back to the way the proverb writer spoke to his readers, I could have the attitude of a child that would just say, what should I do, Father? Because I fear him, and so I keep his commandments. And actually, did you notice every one of these texts that we've read so far hits on this notion that real wisdom, the wisdom that the fear of the Lord sets us out on, is keeping his commandments. We already referenced Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who have good understanding keep his commands. Actually, it was the same thing in Job 28. There in Job 28, in the very last line of Job 28, he speaks about how those who are wise are those who are righteous. Let's read it again. Job 28, verse 29. To man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. Do you remember the way of the wise in Proverbs 4 is contrasted with the way of the wicked, not because they're such intelligent folks and they know how to do all these interesting things on the job or whatever. The way of the wicked is deep darkness. It's filled with violence. It's filled with deception. The stuff that James talked about, the wisdom from below, what's, so un, what's, what's, what's characterized it? What juxtaposes it against the wisdom from above? Well, the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, reasonable, full of good fruits, all that kind of stuff. In other words, it... It carries us to action. It carries us to respond to God in the way that he calls us to. It calls us to obedience, not rebellion, not our own self, uh, self-determined self kind of path. We say, oh God, I know you said this is how I should date, or I know this is how you said I should use my money, or I know this is how you said I should speak, or I know you said whatever, but thank you, but I think, you know what, I think this, or people say that, or whatever. No, that's not wisdom. And well, it is a wisdom but it's a wisdom that leads you into deep darkness. It's the wisdom of demons. It's the wisdom from below. And it won't produce anything good. And that inside moral compass you have of what ought to be, what you should do, what's right and wrong, it's going to be all turned around. You may think you're going north and you're going to be going as far south as you possibly can because you're not submitting yourself to the commandments of God. Go back to Proverbs chapter 1. This is exactly what he said 
his writing was all about. Remember that? Proverbs 1. He says at the beginning that he wrote all this stuff so that we would know things. To know wisdom and instruction. So you picture a little guy walking around with a book and spectacles and he's just really thinking in deep thought in some library somewhere. But that's not where it ends. To discern the sayings of understanding. Okay, now he's in the, in the college lecture hall and he's debating people and he wants to know the sayings of understanding and he's asking questions and he's offering his own answers and all that sort of stuff. But then you see that's not the portrait at all. Verse 3. This wisdom, this understanding, this thing that the fear of the Lord will guide us into. Verse 3. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. The wise will hear and learn and grow in their understanding. The wise are those who know that God has the answers. That God is the one who will guide me in the path that I ought to go. My only task is to trust in Him. So that's the challenge I'd like to give to you. It's the challenge I've been giving myself the past few days as I've been thinking about this. And I think it's the challenge that the Spirit of God wants us to take on every moment of every day. What wisdom am I following? God gave us that thing inside, telling us what we ought to do and ought not to do. What are you allowing to guide you? Is it the wisdom from above or the wisdom from below? Here's the beautiful thing. Our God is gracious and merciful. And it doesn't matter how, much you, how far down that dark, dark path you've gone into the wisdom of this earth, the wisdom from the things below. There's a light. He came into a dark world where people did not receive him. And he, the true wisdom of God, he called and said, hey, just come follow me. And I'll change you. I'll enlighten you. I'll set you free from that confusion and frustration and stumbling and not knowing why and your failures and your all the bad stuff. Just come on over here. And I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. I'll teach you the way of wisdom. And thank God that he sent us that light. If you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I think I have been following a lot of worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. And I have been in darkness and I'm stumbling around and I don't know why. Don't stay there. Don't stay there. I'm going to pray right now for all of us that God would help us to walk in the way of wisdom. But I'm going to pray especially for those of us who have been walking really actively in bad ways, walking in the way of darkness. And I'm going to pray specifically that you don't sit on that and just keep that to yourself. But that you reach out, that you let somebody know. Before you get up from your chair, before you turn off the stream, you shoot a text to somebody that you know will help you. Not somebody who's following the way of the world, by the way. Somebody who's following God's way. So that you can walk in God's light. So that you can be free from the wisdom of this world. Um, and walk in the way of wisdom from above. Father in heaven, thank you for being our light and our salvation. We're sorry for all the foolishness we've invented and called wisdom and that we follow as wisdom. Please protect us. Please forgive us. Please deliver us. I pray especially for those of us who want to love you and want to serve you, but we just keep on rebelling against you and trusting in the wisdom of this world. We dig down deep. Um, in ourselves and in people around us and the ideas of this world. And we just keep finding more stumbling blocks and more frustration. 
I pray, God, that you'd help those of us who are in that place to repent, to be humble, to be thankful for your grace and kindness and your mercy. I pray that all of us would be merciful to one another whenever we find out that we've been failing or we've been messing up. Help us to lift one another up, to get people on the right path so that we can all walk in your wisdom, so that we can all taste now and look forward to the time when we'll taste it forever, the peaceful fruit of righteousness for all who follow after your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.